Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also teach New Testament, Old Testament, biblical interpretation, theology, and church history at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm so thankful for you as a listener. It would be very helpful if you went to Apple Podcasts and gave us a positive review and rating. We would sure love to have you do that. In addition, some of you may not be familiar with the book that I wrote that came out last year called Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. Uh, You can get that on Kindle. Uh, You can also get it on paperback on Amazon, so I encourage you to check that out as well. And so today, I want to deal with what I'm calling the provisionist predicament, the provisionist predicament in Ephesians chapter 1. As I've listened to leading provisionists and those that hold to the corporate view of election, I've found that their understanding exegesis and interpretation of Paul's great passage in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, has some problems. It it poses a predicament when you look at Paul's understanding of that passage. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage first so that we're familiar with it, and then I'm going to discuss what this predicament actually is. So let's just read. This is actually one long sentence in the Greek text that Paul writes. So Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will." so that we who were to first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So how do the provisionists interpret this text in regard to election and predestination. Well, let me just say right out that they deny that this passage teaches unconditional individual election unto salvation, the way that we believe it in the Reformed tradition. In short, they believe that God first chose Jesus as the elect one, And once you get included or get united to Jesus, then you become part of the elect group. So God chose that the faithful in Christ Jesus, 
would become part of the elect group once they are connected or included or marked in Christ. And so when does this inclusion or being marked in Christ happen? When does this happen? Did it happen before the foundation of the world where God chose certain individuals to be saved? Or did this being marked or being included in Christ happen at a point in time when a sinner chose freely to place his or her faith in Christ? Well, the latter is their answer. Their answer is you become part of the elect when you freely choose to believe in Jesus. And once that happens, you are in Christ and thus you're part of the elect. And so how does one come to be in Christ? Their answer You are included in Christ when you exercise faith. You're marked with Christ. And as a result, you are part of the chosen or the elect group. So when did this happen? When did you get included in Christ? Not before the foundation of the world, but upon the free exercise of your faith. Now here's the provisionist predicament with this interpretation of Ephesians 1. Let me give you five issues that I think are problematic, and then we're going to actually look in detail at this passage of Scripture, and we're going to get into the Greek text, especially on verse 13. So, number one, I think they're conflating the Father's choosing with the Holy Spirit's sealing. They're looking at those two things as maybe synonymous, or they're confusing them, um, there, 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 there's some type of confusion between what the Father does in choosing us and what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Number two, I think they're going out of order of the text. They're jumping down to verse 13 to make faith the condition for election instead of starting at the beginning with Paul's flow of thought where election comes first and then faith comes later on down the passage as the, the, um, the condition for our faith. Also, this is a big issue, number three, they view being in Christ or in Him as one-dimensional in that being in Christ is only at the point of exercising faith that one is in Christ or marked in Christ. There's no other time or sequence where one is in Christ. It's only at the time of believing where you're marked in Christ. Number four, they use the NIV's rendering of this passage to, I think, prove their point. In the NIV, as we'll see, this dynamic equivalent, which is not an actual word-for-word translation, I think renders this passage um, not as faithful to the original Greek. It's more of an interpretive way of, of rendering that passage. And then number five, they view the choosing and predestinating actions of God to, revert, to refer to more of a plan of salvation, that there would be an elect group in Christ And they don't see it as God actually choosing individuals to be saved before the foundation of the world. Now, the key hermeneutical approach to the provisionist predicament, their understanding of this text, is to take the NIV's rendering of verse 13 and make faith the condition for being part of the elect or faith being the condition for you to be in Christ and thus be part of the elect. 
So how does the NIV translate this? We'll come back to it. But the NIV translates this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So as we look at this text, I just want to ask three big questions, and we'll come back and, and look at those in detail, but I want us just to kind of get our bearings straight, because I think these three big questions go to the heart of the disagreement over how to interpret this passage. So I'm going to ask these, these are, these are big ticket questions, and then we're going to dive down into the text and hopefully answer them. Question number one, what's the nature and the timing of God's choosing? What's the nature and timing of God's choosing? When did God choose? Who did he choose? What was the choice? Who was the choice? What's the nature and timing of God's choosing? That's the first big question. Second big question, what's the nature and timing of faith or believing? Is faith the condition for election? When, what is the nature of this faith? What's the timing of it? Question number three, what's the nature and timing of the Holy Spirit's sealing? What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Now, we're going to answer these questions as we move through the text. Let me just give a few observations in general about this text. I mean, you could preach a month of Sundays on this one passage of Scripture and still not mine the depths of what Paul is teaching. But let me just give you some some general observations. Uh, First of all, there's a clear trinitarian order to the text it's very evident paul starts with the father the father chooses the father adopts the father predestines the father gives an inheritance it starts with the father then it moves to the son the beloved that we have redemption in the beloved in the son everything is summed up in the son and then it ends with the holy spirit being the seal the deposit that guarantees our final inheritance in heaven. So there's a clear Trinitarian order to the passage of Scripture. Another observation we need to understand here as well is that the phrase in him or in Christ is repeated throughout this passage. It doesn't just show up in verse 13. It's all through this. So we need to understand how Paul uses that in him or in Christ all throughout. Paul's main point In this passage of Scripture, if you can distill it down to what's Paul's main point, there's a lot of things going on. His main point is that all the blessings of our salvation from first to last are to be found in Christ. All the blessings. That's how he starts it. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to list what these blessings of salvation are. And then verse 10, I think, is the thesis to the entire passage that all things are summed up in Christ. So Christ is central. So the blessings of our salvation, all aspects of our salvation, are in Christ, but because there's a clear Trinitarian order to the passage, they're given to us by each person of the Trinity at a certain point in time and in a certain way. So all the blessings are in Christ, but they are dispersed to us through the the Trinity, each person of the Trinity. Okay, let's, let's explore these blessings. Uh, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, the Father has blessed us in Christ. Now, the question becomes, when did these blessings become ours? You have to ask the question. 
When did these blessings become ours? Did they only become ours at the exercise of our faith? Or was there an order to when these blessings were given, how these blessings came to us? What's Paul's burden? Is Paul's burden to say, you only receive these blessings when you believe? They're only activated when you use your free will. Or does Paul start with God's action before time to bless us? So Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay, we're still focused on the Father. The Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, who does the choosing? The Father. Who is chosen? Doesn't say anything here about Jesus being the chosen. It doesn't say anything about God choosing a plan or predestinating a plan. The direct object is us. Now, you will often hear them argue, well, who is the us? The us is the faithful in Christ Jesus, referring to those who exercise their faith. So the us is the faithful in Christ. Yes, the us is believers. But what they would say is it doesn't say individuals arbitrarily picked before the foundation of the world for no apparent reason. Okay, Paul just says us, and his audience is believers. So these spiritual blessings are to believers. Okay, they're, they're not to the non-elect. They're not to the reprobate. They're not to those who are in hell. Paul is giving us all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So obviously the us is believers. We're chosen um, and non-believers are not chosen. Okay, when did God's choice take place? Before the foundation of the world. This is very important. Was a plan of salvation chosen? Was Jesus chosen? Is that what Paul says here? Or were we chosen? And we can even say that believers are chosen. And the idea here is that the choice was not conditioned upon anything, upon faith, upon merit, upon meeting any condition. Paul defines us as chosen to be holy and blameless, which makes an assumption. It means that when God made the choice of individuals to be saved, we were not holy or blameless. In other words, it was an unconditional election. There was no, we see no conditions in this passage of Scripture for a believer to meet in order to be elected, in order to be chosen. Now, there are conditions that a sinner has to meet in order to be saved, justified. What's the condition a sinner has to meet in order to be justified? The condition is repentance and faith. We have no problems with that, as Calvin is saying, that in order to be justified, you have to place your faith in Christ. What are the conditions for justification? Repentance and faith. What are the conditions for being chosen? None. What are the conditions for being predestined? None. We see no conditions there for the election. So we don't want to confuse or conflate election or predestination with justification or conversion. Very clear on this. We need to understand this. We don't want to mix up these different aspects of salvation. It's unconditional election, but it is conditional conversion, if I can say it that way. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so how are you saved? You have to meet the condition. What's the condition? You have to call upon the name of the Lord. You have to repent and believe the gospel. Okay, are there any conditions you have to meet in order to be chosen? 
Does Paul list any conditions here for election, for choosing, for predestination? No, he lists none. As a matter of fact, he says, God's assuming or God's viewing you as unholy and blameworthy, as guilty. So actually, the choice of God to save you was in spite of or in fact of your fallen condition. Okay, Ephesians 1, 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, this predestination, the Father's predestining work, was through Jesus Christ. So, so far, what what have we seen so far? Just in the first verses 3, 4, and 5. The blessings are in him. The choosing is in him. And the predestination is through him. So that phrase, in him, in Christ, is is already showing up. So the question then becomes, do these blessings only happen when a person believes? In other words, a person does not experience the blessings of being chosen or predestined or adopted until they meet the conditions of exercising faith. Does Paul say that in the text at this point? What does the text say? It simply says, the blessings are in Christ. The Father chose us, not a plan. The Father predestined us. The direct objects are not plans or purposes, but individuals. Okay, Ephesians 1, 7. In him, the same phrase again. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay, we have redemption in him. In him shows up. Now now we're switching from what the Father has done to what the beloved Son has done. We have redemption in him, the beloved Son. Now, does this redemption only occur when we place our faith in Jesus? Is there mention here of faith or any condition that we need to meet in order to have redemption? The answer is no. So here's the question. When did our redemption occur? Does our redemption only occur only when we believe. Now, again, I don't want to confuse these theological concepts. Our justification occurs when we believe, but our redemption was accomplished on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he obtained our eternal redemption. He didn't make it a possibility. He didn't make it a hypothetical um, situation where we would have to use our free will to somehow activate that redemption. Those whom God chose those whom God predestined were united to Christ in his death on the cross and his death became our death. So that redemption was obtained for us on the cross. And if you go back and read, especially Romans chapter five and six, you find out that um, our being united in Christ was at the cross. So here we have another in him phrase. Now this time it took place in history at the cross where Our Savior died. So all these blessings are in Christ. The Father chose us and predestined us in Christ. We have redemption in Him. And then let's go to Ephesians 1.11. In Him, so the same phrase again, in Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In Him, in Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance. Okay, now question, when did this happen? Only upon our exercise of faith? Again, Paul links this to our being predestined. So 
up to this point, the way Paul is presenting this to us in this Trinitarian formula, in God's mind, from before the foundation of the world to the future inheritance and all points in between, all these blessings have been in Christ. They're all in Christ. And not once do we have faith as the condition we have to meet in order to be in Christ or to receive these blessings. As a matter of fact, all the, the verbs are being done by the Father, the Son, and, and, and we'll get to the Spirit here in just a moment. There's no acting of, of us in any part in this until we get to verse 13. So according to Paul, you were in him, you were in Christ, in election, in predestination, in redemption, and in having an inheritance. Because that phrase, in him, happens all the way through there. Now, let's go to verse 13 in the order in which it appears. Instead of jumping down to it and reading, being marked in Christ, as only showing up in this verse and also making the interpretation that faith is the only condition for us to be in Christ. Now, I want to give you my translation of verse 13 before I give you the modern translations because I, I work through the translation myself. Uh, and it's interesting when you work through the Greek text because what you'll find is that you have two in hymns or in whom. You have two of those in the Greek text. And it makes it a little confusing to find out the antecedent, what it's referring to, how, how do you word that into an English sentence. And so let me just give you my, my, my best translation, and then we'll see what the modern translations do. Okay, so here's my translation of verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him, when you also believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that's the, probably the most, I think, an accurate translation. Now, that's, not a, that's probably not the best way to word it. Sometimes the translators give us a better rendering. But you've got to figure out what, what you're going to do with those two in whom's or in hymns. What, what are they referring to? Are they direct objects? How, how do they relate to believing? How do they relate to being sealed? And let me just say, the main verb in verse 13 is, is having been sealed. That's the main verb. But you've got other verbs in there. You've got hearing and you've got believing. But those are participles, and they're tied to the main verb. But, but Paul's main point in that verse is that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at the, the King James Version, because there's really three main ways to interpret this, depending on how you understand um, the Greek text. And so this is where it makes it a little bit difficult. So let me give you the King James um, of Ephesians 1.13, the KJV, the authorized version. In whom you also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, thankfully, the King James Version uses both of the in whoms or in hymns that are in the original Greek. And so the way the KGV words this passage is that after you heard the word of truth, you trusted in him. After you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you believed in him. After you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The KJV takes the in him 
as the direct object of our believing and trusting. So we trusted in Jesus. We believed in him. And so the main verb here is is we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it's more, the focus on the King James is more believing in Jesus as opposed to being sealed in in him in the Holy Spirit. The in him refers more to the believing in Jesus. This is how John Calvin and Charles Hodge took the rendering of this passage. And again, the main verb is sealed. Uh, It's one verb, one word in the Greek. It's in the aorist passive indicative. It means that the Father, since it's the passive voice, that the Father's one doing the action. He's the one that sealed us. It's passive. He, He did the sealing. And somehow, our being sealed is tied to or connected to hearing and believing in Jesus. So, we have to acknowledge that in this Ephesians passage, we do, this is the first time we do an action, we believe in Jesus. There is a human aspect or human action that we do. We hear the gospel, we believe in Jesus. Okay, So there's no doubt that, that we do something in this passage. After you heard the message and you believed, you were sealed. So we do the hearing, we do the believing. The question becomes, okay, why... Do we believe? When did we believe? And more importantly, is our believing the condition for us being in Christ and thus becoming one of the elect? The second way to translate it, I think is probably a little bit more accurate, is the way that the ESV and the New American Standard translate it. So let me give you the ESV. In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, so this combines both the in hymns, but it makes the, in, the first in him the direct object of believing in Jesus. And then the second in him, which is actually put at the beginning of the ESV sentence, makes it tied all the way to we're sealed. You were sealed in him. Now, the ESV makes it kind of a little awkward. In him, you also, it should just be, it would have been easier for the ESV to say, in him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, comma, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So it has the in him, you were sealed, but then it divides it up with the hearing and the believing, which makes it kind of, it makes the sentence a little bit cumbersome because you really want to have that in him being tied to being sealed. But, and so the ESV gives it a good translation, but it's just it makes it difficult to kind of read it in the English. And I think the, the New American Standard does the same thing there. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This makes it a little bit more confusing. They have the two in him, um, but they basically, in him you believed, in him you were sealed. So it takes the two, it takes the two in hymns and, and, and ties them to the direct object of the first in him, you believed in him, you were sealed in him. Now, A.T. Robertson goes, the famous Greek, Greek scholar goes with this translation. I think, in looking at all the modern translations, the Christian Standard Bible, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think gets to the best English rendering 
of, of how the Greek text reads. So let me just give it to you. I think it, I think it expresses what Paul's trying to say and keeps the original language, but makes it easier to understand in the English text. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now again, this is, this is a little different. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. One of the things the Holman Christian Standard does is it takes out that second in him. So it ties the in him to you believed. It doesn't have the in him you were sealed. So it, it's not quite the best, but it probably is worded the best in English, but I think it somehow gets, it doesn't get to the heart of what Paul's saying here. So if I were to translate this, I would probably take the ESV, but I would, I would reverse the order. This is the way I would translate it. I would take the wording of the ESV, but I would, I would reverse the order in the sentence so that you can understand where the in hymns. I would say, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. The, the point Paul's trying to make is you believed in him and you were sealed in him. There was a believing in him and there was a being sealed in him. So there is an aspect of being sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit, either consequent or coordinate or in conjunction with hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus. So you are sealed in Christ when you believe. Now let's look at the NIV. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, because the NIV is a dynamic equivalent, it's going to give you a little bit more interpretive words there to make it a little bit more clear. It, it has the words, were included and were marked in him. So it doesn't, the, ES, the, the NIV doesn't say you believed in Jesus. It says you were included in Jesus when you heard the message. So they take an interpretation there. It's not, it's not the direct object. So, so the King James Version, the ESV, the New American Standard, the, the Holman Christian Standard, all the other translations make in him the direct object of the believing. When you believed in Jesus, when you heard the message, you believed in Jesus. And then you were marked with a seal, or you were sealed in Christ. What the NIV says here is that you were included in Christ when you heard the message. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Now, there you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. What that interpretation, I think what the, the provisionists are taking with that interpretation is, you were only included in Christ upon faith. That was when you were included in Christ. That's when the only time you were marked in Christ. So the provisionist comes along and takes the conclusion that a person is only included in Christ or only marked in Christ upon believing. Believing and hearing are the conditions of being included in Christ to the exclusion 
of all the other times you see the word in Christ used earlier. So when you freely choose to believe in Jesus, you are included in Christ. And at that point, you become part of the elect group. You were not individually chosen or predestined before the world and would one day place your faith in Christ. You're placing your faith in Christ is the condition that you've met to be marked in Christ and thus to become one of the elect. Now, where did this interpretation come from? That you weren't chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world individually, unconditionally. See, see, here's the issue. Throughout church history, the church fathers and the, the issue in the Protestant Reformation and during the time of the Puritans and, and pretty much up until modern history, the two predominant translations of this passage or understandings of this passage or interpretations of this passage have been that it's referring to individual election unto salvation. The question is, is it unconditional or is it conditional? So both views, the Arminian view, the Calvinist view, see it as individual election unto salvation. The question is, does God do it unconditionally based upon his sovereign will alone, or does God do it based upon the condition of foreseeing faith? So this idea that you use your free will in verse 13 to be in Christ, and once you use your free will to be in Christ, then you become part of the elect group. This is a fairly new translation or interpretation or understanding. Where did it come from? Well, I can argue that it comes from Karl Barth in the 1930s. But let me just talk about Herschel Hobbes because um, most of the provisionists don't refer to Karl Barth because he had some other weird theology. Uh, They go back to the Southern Baptist hero of the 60s and 70s, Herschel Hobbes, who was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was the chairman of the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message Committee. And so here's what Herschel Hobbes says. Uh, First of all, Herschel Hobbes argues that God elected people to be in Christ as opposed to the predestination of particular individuals before the foundation of the world. This is what he writes in his Axioms of the Christian Religion. He says, God elected that all who are in Christ will be saved. All outside of Christ will be lost. So all who are in Christ will be saved. So the question then becomes, okay, how does a person become in Christ? How do you get in Christ? Was, did God elect you in Christ before the foundation of the world, or do you choose to be in Christ by your own free will? He says, you become one of the elect by using your free will to believe in Jesus, based upon Ephesians 1.13. So he writes this, The final choice lay with man. God in his sovereignty set the conditions Man and his free will determines the results. Now, in section 6, God's Purpose of Grace, in the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message Commentary, um, Hobbes espouses his, his view of election as follows. So let me just read this to you, because I think this is where the provisionists primarily get their understanding of Ephesians and this corporate view of election. Hobbes writes this, He elected that all who are in Christ shall be saved. In Christ is the boundary that God marked out beforehand, like building a fence around a field. God did this in His sovereignty. In this act, He asked the counsel or permission of no one. 
All who are within the fence, i.e. in Christ, shall be saved. Man is free to choose whether or not he will be in Christ. God never violates human personality. He will not save a man against his will. He knocks at the door of the heart, but he will not force it open. However, to all who of their own free will will open the door, he enters and saves graciously apart from man's own efforts or merits. Now, he rightly takes great pains there to protect God's sovereignty. He says God wasn't coerced or obligated to save anyone. There's no outside restraints telling God what to do. God is sovereign. But then he says this is what election is. God elected the fence. The fence is being in Christ. Okay, so God elected a plan. God elected a, a plan of salvation that there would be a fence, that there would be Christ. And the way that you get into Christ is that you have to use your free will to choose to be in Christ. You can choose your free will to not be in Christ, but once you choose to be in Christ, then you become part of the plan. You become part of the group. You become part of the elect. So instead of interpreting Ephesians 1 the way we do, as God's choice to elect and predestine certain individuals before creation... He argues that God set up a plan or a boundary or a fence, and that was to be in Christ. Christ is the elect one, and there is a plan for those who would be in Christ. So there's no individual election of salvation, but the choice is to save people who of their own free will will choose to be in Christ by trusting Him for salvation. How do you get in Christ? They look at Ephesians 1.13 and say, you choose that boundary. You choose to get in the boundary. You choose to get in the fence. And once you choose to get in the fence, you become one of the elect. He, he continues, he says this, quote, election refers to a plan of salvation for all men and not simply to the capricious choice of some men and the rejection of others. Notice how he's changed it from individual election to a plan. So God chose a plan. God predestined the plan But God did not choose any individuals specifically for salvation. Now, Paul Basden, in his work, Has Our Theology Changed? Southern Baptist Thought Since 1845. This was written in the early 90s. It's a really good book. Um, It traces key doctrines in Southern Baptist thought going all the way back to 1845 when the Southern Baptist Convention was founded up until about the 80s and 90s. And there's different views on the Bible, on end times, on on the atonement, on election, and he, he traces it. And this is what he says about Herschel Hobbes. I think he, he sums up Hobbes' key theology in regard to uh, predestination and election. This is what Basden writes. God's plan must not be perceived as a hidden decree that predetermines who will and will not be saved. Rather, the plan concerns the all-important condition established by God for receiving salvation, namely grace through Christ. A person's free choice to accept or reject God's plan determines his or her salvation. And then he quotes Hobbes here and says, This decision takes place in the realm of man's free will. Then he goes back and says, Because God has conditioned salvation upon individual choice, the individual's response is the determining factor. If a person chooses to believe in Christ, then that person is saved. The only criteria for salvation is to be in Christ. God elected that all who are in Christ shall be saved. God and his sovereign decreed in Christ, but each person 
in his free will, decides whether or not he will be in Christ. So again, God chose the plan. God predestined the fence. God chose and set up the plan so that whoever would be in Christ would be saved, would thus be part of the elect. So there's no individual election unto salvation before the foundation of the world. It's a plan. How do you get in on the plan? You use your free will to choose Christ. You choose to be in Christ. And when you choose to be in Christ, then you're marked in him, you're included in him, and that ties back up from verse 13 back up to verse 4 that you were chosen in him. Not you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world individually to be saved. You got in on that being chosen down in verse 13 when you used your free will to be in Christ. Now, a modern evangelical Arminian, Brian Abishkano, um, wrote this in the Ashland Theological Journal in 2009, basically sums it up, quote, individuals become united to Christ by faith, making election unto salvation ultimately conditional on faith in Christ. So what's Paul's point in this passage? The point is not that you become elect or chosen only when you believe in Christ, but that upon coordinate or with believing, you receive the Holy Spirit as a seal guaranteeing your inheritance. Now, yes, experientially, you are in Christ when you believe. Before you believed, the Bible says you were in Adam. You were under God's wrath. You were dead in sins. You were not united to Christ in justifying faith. That's very clear. You were not united to Christ in justifying faith. You were not justified in Christ experientially. But yet, according to the flow of the thought that Paul has here in this Trinitarian formula, in God's mind, you were in Christ already before the foundation of the world when God chose you and predestined you. You were in Christ in his mind. You were already in Christ when Jesus died on the cross in your place as a substitute. Obtaining your, obtaining your eternal redemption. And yes, at a point in time when you believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit. And yes, there's a sense in which you have an inheritance in Christ for the future because of your predestination. So, in God's eternal mind, a person is considered to have the blessings of salvation in Christ from before the foundation of the world all the way up to our home in heaven and everything in between. It's not only when we believe that we are in Christ. That's a part of it. It's part of the entire whole. But in God's mind, based upon the repetition of the in Him, in Christ, based upon the order that Paul gives trinitarianly, based upon the fact that everything is God's action up until the very end of verse 13, when you believe, in God's mind, all these blessings are yours in Christ from first to last. Now, Hendrickson, Howard Hendrickson, or not Howard Hendrickson, but um, in his commentary, um, says this. The question must be answered. How is, it to be how is it to be understood that it was in Christ that saints and believers were chosen? The basic answer must be that before the foundation of the world, Christ was the representative and surety of all those who in time would be gathered into the fold. Harold Hunter, in his Ephesians exegetical commentary, says this, In him does not mean that God chose us through faith in Christ, as suggested by Chrysostom, 
because this would destroy God's freedom of choice. If this were the case, believers by their faith would have a legal claim whereby God must choose them. Nor is it as Bart proposes that Christ is the elect and we are in him because the object of the verb choose is us and not Christ. Nor is it because God, by means of his foresight or omniscience, knew who would have faith in him, which then became the basis of his election of them. God's selection was done on the basis of the good pleasure of his will. The summary statement of the Reformed position. So the exegetical conclusion, the provisionist predicament that a person is included in or marked in Christ upon believing separates the entire Trinitarian thrust of this one long sentence. Our election was in Christ, our predestination was in Christ, our redemption was in Christ, our sealing was in Christ. The choice of sinners was before the foundation of the world in Christ. Believers were also in Christ in his redemption at the cross. Believers are sealed in him by the Holy Spirit upon belief. The only time aspect in this entire sentence is the election that took place before the foundation of the world. In God's mind, we were united with Christ in his electing love, as well as we were united in Christ on the cross, and experientially we have union with Christ upon believing and being sealed with the Spirit. The text does not demand that we only become in Christ upon meeting the conditions of hearing and believing in order to become one of the elect. That's the provisionist predicament because that's the conclusion they have. Now you be the arbiter of which interpretation of the text follows the flow of thought, the Greek grammar, the Trinitarian order, the understanding of the repetition of the in him and look and see if there's any conditions that have to be met for election do do, do we confuse or conflate these different aspects of sealing and election and predestination or do we see them as all spiritual blessings but distinctly separate and how they're operating and who does what Uh, the father chooses the son redeems the holy spirit is the deposit so hopefully this has been helpful to show just briefly how Many of our provisionist friends will sometimes look at a passage of Scripture and be influenced by Herschel Hobbes or Karl Barth and, and just maybe see it a different way. You ask the question, which view is the most faithful exegetically, literarily, grammatically to the text of Scripture? Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you have a wonderful day in the Lord. Please um, go to my website, seancole.net, if you want more information. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, You can also email me if you have questions. I'd love to answer some of your questions on a future podcast. Until next time, may we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.